Hello, all you Dirty Rats fans. We've put together two Christmas packages with books and t-shirts. To order, go to HowieCarshow.com and click on store. See you later. This podcast contains content that may be considered unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Dirty Rats call went out of a shooting at Southern Hills Country Club, which was really unique because, uh, you know, I'd never been there and I'd never heard a police call go out there and we knew it was going to be an odd night, let alone an odd next three decades. You're standing over a man that is seated and slumped in his car with a bullet wound between his eyes. Whitey Bulger and Fleming's name came up and we started trying to gather information. Rico who worked for Mr. Wheeler and was a celebrated FBI agent, had been more than just having a professional relationship with these guys. We needed to go talk to Rico, and we needed to keep this John Connolly in the back of our minds. It didn't take but about 10 minutes to figure out that we were being followed. By now, the Tulsa cops had begun to suspect that not only were some FBI agents not interested in solving the murder of Roger Wheeler, but that a few of the G-men might actually have been involved in setting up the gangland hit. What other conclusion could Huff come to when he realized that when he visited Boston, he and his partner were being followed by FBI agents? We would walk through Boston in downtown some of these meetings and we also were trying to meet with potential informants to find out where Callahan was. It didn't take but about 10 minutes to figure out that we were being followed. There were plain government cars, guys in, in suits and so at that time I mean we kind of got alarmed. I mean we didn't want to go back to the police department in Tulsa and act like a bunch of conspiracy theorists but we felt that we stepped off into a conspiracy. This car, seeing these two guys, what are they doing? We're just walking down the street at a pretty slow pace, and they're trying to follow on in a car. We knew that, in fact, I, you know, I was hoping that it was more of a situation of just a, a turf battle. I always, probably for a couple or more years, I always thought maybe the FBI is doing the right thing here on this case, and uh, maybe they've got a bigger, grander plan. Maybe I had convinced myself, maybe they really know what was going on on this highlight end, and uh, it involved something else that they couldn't share right now, and they were gonna pop this thing in a, in a months or years. We'd come in behind it and kind of figure out what was relevant to us. I believe we did have a very short meeting with the uh, FBI, which was probably a really wrong thing to do. I guess if you look in a crystal ball and you can see what's going to face you for the next two or three decades, we might have made a different decision. But we were in search of John Hall uh, Callahan. By this time, we had gathered so much information from the Connecticut police that uh, we realized 
Callahan was a guy that if we could find him, we could probably flip him. And he was not to be found that day, in fact, uh, or that week. Uh, he was, I believe, preparing for a trip to Miami where he was delivering money to uh, John Monterano, who was staying in his condo down there. So we went all over town, and we didn't realize how big this deal was. I mean, that, and that goes back to a little bit of our naivety. You know, we were in the middle of the country. We didn't know what was going on in Boston. They returned to Tulsa. The search for John Callahan continued. Everyone was on the lookout. Tulsa police, Connecticut and Massachusetts state police. The FBI was also hunting for Callahan for very different reasons, as Huff soon learned. I remember walking into my house and literally as I was walking in the door, I answered the phone, and it was this guy, and I, I remember his name. I mean, this was a big deal to me. His name was uh, John Parmenter from the Metro-Dade Homicide Unit. And he goes, hey, is this uh, Mike Huff? And I said, yeah. And he goes, the Tulsa police? And I said, yeah. He said, hey, we got John Callahan down here in the trunk of a car. So, I, you know, I asked him, I said, what the hell is he doing in the trunk of a car? And, I mean, I, I you know, uh, kind of a stupid question, but... Uh, he goes, yeah, he's in, in a car. He's got a dime on his chest. And, uh, you know, I mean, at the time, phone calls were a dime. Drop a dime, phone call, and a pay phone. So I said, holy cow. And he goes, he goes, I hear you've been looking for him. And I said, yeah, we were looking for him just a few days ago. And uh, he was nowhere to be found in Boston. <sighs> Boy, I, I can almost feel it as we're talking now. My chest got tight. Like, wow, what did I just cause? And who's pulling these strings? I mean, by now, I'm thinking there's some sort of conspiracy going on here. There's a leak. There's something. Who the hell can I trust? Why is this happening around here? I mean, I, we knew it had to be connected. In the back of our mind, we kept thinking of what O'Sullivan was blabbing about and uh, running his mouth. And we thought, man, if, if that's true, did Rico intersect some way? or other, you know, in this deal, and we knew we needed to talk to Rico. After 16 years, the FBI finally has its man. A tip led investigators to a Santa Monica apartment. It was Whitey and his girlfriend. Agents and other task force members. I don't know how they make people like that. I don't know how a human can be like that. Please allow me to speak plainly. I do not know where my brother is. We start off with breaking news. I Notorious not mobster Whitey Bulger is dead. Reports surfacing that Bulger was killed in a West Virginia prison. The name of that, the guy <laughs> I put one in the chamber, like, and he looked up, and I'm aiming, and he says, the other guy, hey, a bag of peanuts, please. From HCRN Studios in Boston, this is Dirty Rats. It took a while to set up, but finally, Huff flew to Miami to meet with the crooked Fed at his office at World High Lie headquarters. 
Now, I didn't know if this was the one and only time I was going to talk to him, but I, I asked him if he had anything to do with Wheeler's murder or conspiracy. I mean, that was a question. I mean, the guy would sit across from me and uh, kind of be condescending, kind of scoff at me, and I didn't care. It really didn't matter to me. I certainly didn't want to make friends. We were there over an hour. I believe he was, he was accompanied by his lawyer, which always makes me suspicious. I don't carry one in my back pocket. And so I felt like he highlighted himself as a suspect. And, you know, when we got to some questions that were more pointing the finger at him, he would have a whispered uh, conversation with his lawyer. And I'm thinking, wow, what, what's going on here? This is kind of interesting. He wasn't a real good poker player. I was trying to be, but I knew then, but I know now it's been a whole different thing. But, you know, I played with the cards that were dealt to me. Interviewing somebody is, it's not an argument, because an argument will end quickly. You want somebody to paint themselves into a corner, and sometimes it takes a long time. And I was with my partner, and, and we were thinking that this is going to be really a difficult deal. So I went in there, and I'm thinking I'm going to at least meet somebody that former law enforcement, you know, there's always the shake of hands and trying to get comfortable and maybe having some small talk and that's what I was expecting before the interview but I walked in and man I just felt like I was in the presence of a, of a godfather I mean it was like uh, you know he wouldn't even get up to, to uh, shake my hand I thought I was supposed to kiss his ring or something we were immediately kind of at odds and I had prepared a bunch of questions and I wanted to lead up from the most boring question to, to finally get to, you know, hey, did you have anything to do with killing Mr. Wheeler? But he just didn't let me interview him like that. He was really wanting to try to command the interview and, and uh, I don't care if I was 25 or not. I mean, this was my job, not his job. And uh, he was just a witness. I treated him like that. But by the end of it, I felt he was a suspect. Dirty Rats will continue after a brief word from our sponsors. The reviews for Dirty Rats are in. People love this gripping and gory true crime podcast. But a lot of Dirty Rats fans want more. Become a Dirty Rats Patreon member. Just go to patreon.com slash dirtyratspod. For only $4.99 a month, you'll get content like John Zip Connolly's full FBI training video, behind-the-scenes interviews with the Dirty Rats writers, producers, and narrators, and so much more. Patreon.com slash dirtyratspod. The years went by. Whitey Bulger kept murdering people, mostly in Boston. He and Stevie took over the cocaine trade and made millions. Whitey's politician brother Billy was lionized as a hero on 60 Minutes. Back in Tulsa, Huff kept investigating run-of-the-mill murders. But he never forgot the Roger Wheeler case. You know, everything was was a, a battle. Back in the day, we had to fill out slips to make long-distance phone calls. We had to 
justify almost to the point of begging if we wanted to make a trip to get the funds authorized. Tulsa hadn't had a case like this. You know, we're busy, but it's pretty localized or it's in the state or maybe we had to run down to Texas or something on past cases. Uh, But to say, hey, I need money to go to Miami or Boston and I'll probably be back in another month or so to ask for money again. I mean, it was like administratively, we were high maintenance. And I'm thinking, God, am I going to get, not fired, but am I going to get reassigned because I'm doing too much here? At least he had the knowledge that he wasn't alone. That police in four states were likewise trying to crack the massive corrupt criminal enterprise that the Bulgers and the FBI had built together. Amongst the guys, we were partnered up with Connecticut State Police, with Massachusetts State Police, with Metro-Dade Homicide, with Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And so we always had, uh, at the very least, phone conversations with one or somebody else almost every day. Then it turned to, like, conversations after hours from home. And it was just, I really liked these these guys that I was working with. Uh, We found ourselves kind of obsessed We shared something that we didn't know what it was, but we knew it was big. And I became friends with them. I mean, uh, I went and visited uh, Freilich and Trooper in Connecticut on vacation with uh, my wife, now my ex-wife. We became friends. And, you know, as this gnashed down to the ugly end, I mean, it was ugly by the time this thing popped out a large intestine. I mean, it was a pile. And it was hard to it's hard to be friends with everybody because people were just so scared of the power of the of the government. It's a mythical thing. You don't know really where it is. You can't really identify who you piss off. It's kind of like that Colonel O'Donovan trying to be uh, forced out of his job by uh, Billy Bulger. I mean, it was that kind of stuff that that, uh, really impacted our lives and uh, made it tough on days to be involved. Rico had set up the Wheeler hit. The cops all knew it. But the FBI didn't care. When the feds decided to take down a crooked federal judge in Florida, they needed to find one of their own who could convincingly pass himself off as a gangster. There was only one FBI agent who could play a gangster well enough to bribe the judge. H. Paul Rico came out of retirement. He fit the role of underworld boss to perfection. After the judge was thrown off the bench, Rico received a commendation from the U.S. Senate for his undercover work. Rico was on top of the world. Meanwhile, back in Tulsa, Huff's life was falling apart. I'm telling you, uh, it broke up two marriages. And I uh, don't let me get off on this. I'll I'll wind up, uh, you know, slobbering and blubbering. But And I want to say that I'm remarried and uh, so blessed uh, to have found a lady that uh, sweeped up the pieces of of me and and uh, kind of rescued me. I mean, I, I uh, uh, you know, by the end of this, and in all fairness to both my ex-wives, uh, you know, I was a basket case. I became a basket case kind of early on. I mean, so yeah, it, it broke up my first marriage and 
And, uh, you know, I met a, uh, another wonderful woman who was intrigued by uh, what I did. And uh, she was a beautiful lady, a former Playboy bunny, free spirit, had a great family. And uh, all along, she had told me, hey, don't worry about this. When I call and say, hey, I can't come home or, you know, we interrupted a vacation. Uh, and then... I remember when, when we uh, let Martirano plead out here in Tulsa. It, to me, it was kind of just another day. And uh, she got all dressed up and said, Hey, I want to see this ghost you've been chasing all these years. And I should have kind of detected that maybe she was getting her feel of that. And so really on the day of our breakup, basically her last words were, Hey, you know when I told you not to worry about me because it was all okay? She goes, Maybe you should have worried. The years went by, and the case continued to consume Mike Huff. He finally got to talk to Zip Connolly after he retired from the FBI in 1990. As always, Zip was full of himself. It was hard to talk to the guy because he wanted to talk about, hey, do you know they're going to make a made-for-HBO movie or show about me? And I'm thinking, really? Well, what's that have to do with this case. All he wanted to do was talk about himself. Once I realized that's all only where he was going to go, I didn't need to hear his propaganda. So I got off the phone before I said something I'd regret later. Whitey and Stevie and Johnny Martirano were indicted for racketeering and murder in 1994. Whitey went on the lam, but the FBI agents Rico and Connolly remained free. Huff was so frustrated he put out his own Tulsa Police Department wanted poster on Whitey. It described Whitey as a, quote, man with extreme bad breath who may be found in homosexual communities, resorts, or nudist facilities, unquote. Now, I'll show you how obsessed I was. We actually went on vacation to Florida one year. I can't remember the year, but I had two kids. And I took my whole family, and part of our vacation was running down leads on Whitey Bulger when he was a fugitive. The big break finally came in 1999, 18 years after Wheeler's murder in the parking lot at Southern Hills. A federal judge was holding hearings on FBI corruption in Boston. Huff flew up as often as he could during the months-long process. Ultimately, Flemmy and Bulger were outed as FBI informants and Martirano, the actual trigger man in the Wheeler hit, flipped. He laid it all out. The incredible decades of the dirty rat's murder and corruption. Eventually, Huff arrived at the special prison where Martirano was being held. He was finally going to sit down with the ghost that he'd been chasing all these years. He was in a highly secure, special prison. He didn't have a cell, he kind of had a suite. I think we spent three days talking to Martirano the first time. Man, I mean, it was like uh, just the floodgates were open with information. I mean, things that, that really didn't matter to us, and this is what some of these feds that don't work murders maybe took issue with. But I wanted to hear his entire story because I wanted to figure out how we can corroborate this guy because here, you know, he doesn't have the best reputation. He needs a little investigation to figure out 
is this guy telling the truth or not? Let me let me hear every morsel of what he's got to say. Kind of spend the next months or year or so trying to see is, is that true or is, or is he embellishing it? So we spent days together. I guess we brought him out here to Oklahoma and, you know, he had, a, had this outstanding memory. And I asked him, I said, hey, how come you remember more details on this crime than your run-of-the-mill crimes? And he said, hey, I, I just knew that this was going to come back. And he, he told me, he said, the very first time I laid eyes on you, I was on vacation in Hawaii. And this brand new show came on called Unsolved Mysteries. And you were the one that showed my picture and said I was a person of interest while he was a fugitive. So I knew right then that you and I were going to meet someday. I got to tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm a realist. He's a killer and I'm a cop. But I thought he really told me the truth. Several years later, when Martirado was released from prison, the TV news magazine 60 Minutes was planning to do the first interview with the notorious hitman. 60 Minutes reached out to Huff, the cop who had tracked Martirado all those years. CBS flew Huff to Boston on the network's dime, and then the producers told him what they wanted the cop to do with the mobster who'd admitted to murdering 20 people. Finally, it came time for Marano and I to be filmed together. And we were going to be walking through the Boston Commons and stuff. I'm thinking, man, this is not me, and I don't want to do this. And, uh, you know, I don't mind talking to the guy, but we're not on some date or something walking through the Boston Commons. And so I, I told the guys from 60 Minutes, I said, if this is what you want from me, let's rearrange my plane ticket and... I'm heading back home. And I saw the 60 Minutes deal, and I thought it was, you know, good. But I had no regrets about not being in it. But the most unforgettable moment for Huff had come earlier. In 2003, Martirano had been flown to Tulsa to plead guilty. Then Flemmie pleaded guilty. It was the only way to avoid the death penalty. Now Huff had enough evidence he needed to move against his oldest nemesis, ex-FBI agent H. Paul Rico, now 76 years old. By this time, Rico's retired, and he's living on Miami Beach in a condominium. So we did some kind of some prep work, knowing all this was coming together. And so uh, myself and my partner, we went and got sworn in as U.S. Marshals. And so we started preparing for this. And so then it just popped one day. The DA here in Tulsa said, hey, we're going to do this. And this warrant's going to be out tomorrow. We put everything on high gear and got plane and, and hotel and stuff. Went straight to Miami all the way. We're dealing with Metro-Dade, who brings in the U.S. Marshals uh, down there. We wanted to lay eyes on this guy as soon as we got there. So I think the first night we took turns sleeping in the car in his parking lot because we didn't want him to get tipped off and maybe make one of those midnight runs. So the next morning, we uh, beat on his door at the earliest possible moment. It was sexist in the morning. When we went into the condominium, we knocked on the door. A couple minutes, he's hollering through the door, who is it? I tell him it's Sergeant Huff, Tulsa Police, opened the door. And he did. As he opened the door, he's got his boxer shorts, his uh, undershirt. And I told him, I said, hey, uh, you're under arrest for first degree murder, let's get dressed. Walked to the car, took him to Central Booking, and they helped me get him booked in. And 
but uh, it was like a, a zoo in a third world country down there. His wife thought it was pretty funny. He put his world highlight cashmere golf sweater on to get booked into jail. You know, I don't know how you say it. We bonded, if you will. You know, it had been years since I'd seen him. I, I'd gone back two or three times or talked to him on the phone a bunch of times, and he was always kind of a turd to me. But uh, by this time, the roles had been reversed a little bit. I wasn't a young guy anymore, and I wasn't going to be naive. And, you know, I was just saying, you're, you're on way to jail. There's no talking out of it. Get a lawyer. So when I was walking out of the jail, picture of pandemonium within the jail, there was a guy with this huge goiter on his neck that was like leaking fluid and stuff, and Rico was standing right next to him. And he was, he just kind of gave me this look of, hey, I need help. You're leaving me here. And I, I just turned around and said, buddy, I, there's nothing I can do for you. Good luck to you. It was an emotional thing. I knew we had just done something really big, and it was going to piss people off. People were coming out of the woodwork to track me down and tell me that I should have shared this information with the FBI. They should have participated in the arrest. And they're telling me, you got no case, you got nothing. And, and I'm going, good Lord, how do you know that? I haven't even written all the reports yet. Rico was extradited back to Oklahoma his health began to fail. Just a few weeks later, on a Saturday morning, he died in a Tulsa jail hospital. Huff says Rico's death was a relief. I had gone to a court hearing on Friday that he wasn't present at because he was in the hospital. And he was going to be represented by a fellow by the name of Garvin Isaacs that represented a guy years back earlier in my career that had killed uh, three young girls at a Girl Scout camp east of Tulsa, and uh, that was a real emotionally charged trial. And I still wonder every day how some of these defense attorneys choose to represent so many people. So I don't want to say I was happy, but I was I was thinking, well, at least I won't have to go against this Garvin Isaacs. And, uh, you know, I called uh, Tim Harris, the DA, and uh, told him, and maybe he was a little bit more excited than I was just because, you know, they weren't going to have to deal with this trial. I think I went out and had a day full of margaritas uh, when that happened, just because I knew it was was going to be a landmark day in my life. Of Wheeler's murderers, Rico, Bulger, and Martirano's getaway driver are all dead. Flemmie is serving a life sentence for murder in an undisclosed federal prison. Martirano is 78, a free man in suburban Boston. Huff still thinks about the case that consumed his life for a quarter century. It was a decades-long learning experience for me. I mean, if I lived in Boston, I can tell you, it'd be a wrecking crew. It'd be me or them. I mean, it's these guys that finally put their Whitey Bulger conspiracy together. It wasn't the kind of police work I do because they use a grand jury. I'm out at two in the morning trying to get somebody to cooperate with me. It's a whole different animal. They were probably playing chess and I'm real good at checkers. Now I'm pretty good at chess, but at the time I was kind of like a bull in the china closet. And if you got in my way or obstructed me, it would be a little bit more of a confrontation. Whether that was good or bad, I, I don't really know. He's 64 years old now, married again. His son is a Tulsa police officer. 
Well, I retired eight years ago, but about three years ago, I was asked to head up a volunteer cold case task force for the sheriff's office. And so I do my PI work. I got about 20 guys that I kind of keep track of. Many of them are retired FBI agents and other federal agents. They're great guys. I, I have a good time. I'm still trying to put people in jail. Next time on Dirty Rats, Billy Bulger would hold his annual uh, St. Patrick's Day breakfast. And now I lay me down to slumber. I pray to heaven I hit the number. If I die before I wake, put $10 on 436-708. My brother wrote that prayer.